Hello and welcome back to the Arsenal Therapy Podcast. My name's Farhan, also known as Gunner since 96. And, well, that's it really. Uh, usually I follow that up with, and we're joined here today by or with, uh, but in this case it's no one. You're stuck with me, unfortunately. But that's okay because we've got plenty to talk about, including Arsenal's draw at the Emirates to Brentford, including the PGML, PGMOL um, mishap. Mis- I mean, is that the right word we use? Mishap? I mean, <laughs> lost for words um, at this current moment in time. I'm still yet to process what on earth happened at the Emirates. How? How do you forget to draw lines? How? How does that happen? How does a human error happen in the VAR world? Somebody explain, please. Because I'm finding it really difficult to comprehend how this man makes the same mistake twice. <laughs> Lee Mason's done it twice. And not only that, there were two offsides in that goal. In the run-up to that goal, there were two separate offsides. So right now we are in fantasy land. You know, we're in a we're in a different stratosphere. We're in a crazy world. Forget Alice in Wonderland. We're out of space. We're on a different planet. I'm gonna try and compose myself as best as I can, but for the purpose of receiving the therapy that I very much need. I may go a little bit crazy. So we're going to spend this episode digesting uh, the course of the 90 minutes, whether I believe Arsenal did enough to deserve three points, whether I believe that we're going through somewhat of a blip and who's to blame. Well, we all know who's to blame, really, don't we? Um, and and the you know a little a little preview ahead of the big one. <laughs> At the time of recording, it's a Sunday evening. Um, I could have chosen to not record this episode, but then that's wouldn't that wouldn't be fair on you guys, now, would it? We've got a very big game coming up in the middle of the week. On a Wednesday, a Wednesday evening is when they have um, prepared the fixture between Arsenal and Manchester City at the Emirates Stadium. Now, before I came on here, before I pressed the record button, I very quickly um, opened some tabs up on my computer screen. One of them being what on earth the PGMOL is, what it's responsible for, and Mr. Howard Webb. I'm eager to understand what this organization actually does and what this man is doing and how he's influencing the organization. Because we've we've seen some really <laughs> some really dodgy decisions happen this weekend. Um it all started off at the London Stadium between West Ham and Chelsea. A clear and obvious blatant handball by Thomas Suchek, which was denied. Which is fine, you know. Um, I'm here for the banter. I'm here for the pointing and laughing at Chelsea fans, as well as the club. We all want to see their demise, of course we do. Spending three hundred million in the January transfer window, and then failing to deliver—what's more funnier than that? 
so that was the first decision. And then the second one was, uh, I believe, Wolves versus Southampton. A red card or a second yellow card incident um, whereby, and this is really bizarre, this is really strange. And I don't know, I mean, we, we've seen weirder things, but in the context of what is normal, and what tends to usually happen in this kind of scenario where players uh, confront the referee, not necessarily surround him. I, I don't think in this particular case there was much aggression or there was, you know, Wolves, the Wolves players um, stepping out of line. There were two or three players approaching the referee in what can only be described as quite a normal and in actual fairness to them, in a very calm and dignified manner. Mario Lemina was the third player to approach the referee and he was given a second yellow. He was dismissed. Was it a second yellow or red? It says here on the Google that it was a straight red, so maybe it was a straight red. So he was given a red card and he was sent on his way to have a very early shower on the 27th minute. I mean, wow. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, we saw a yellow card incident happen today with the City game, at the uh, City game between City and Villa, where, again, same kind of scenario, players approaching the goal, uh, sorry, the, the referee, and one of them being given a yellow card. So this is something which is clearly... Um, been adopted by the PGMOL, instructed by Howard Webb. Um, it's been, I don't know whether it, I don't know whether you can call this a problem. I don't think, necess I don't necessarily think this has been a problem in the game. I think that since, ever since Arsenal's, this narrative against Arsenal that we're too, we get too excited when we beat oppositions we should be beating or our manager is way too excited and way too animated on the touchline. Ever since that narrative has been brought to light, suddenly we're seeing this huge ordeal between players and referees and this notion that uh, numerous players approaching referees is number one, abnormal, and number two, out of line. I always thought, growing up watching the game, I always thought it was part of the game. Refer referees versus players is something that we have grappled with for decades. During the course of a 90-minute game, a player is always going to try and get the most out of a challenge or um, a dispute between him and the ref. So now we're seeing, you know, this new... I guess, chapter in the game or a new chapter between the referees and the players or, or referees against clubs. It's, it's, it, I don't know, it doesn't sit right with me. It's all suddenly turned really soft, really mushy, really, you know, robotic especially with the introduction of VAR. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I think VAR is a good implementation to the sport of football in 2023, you know. I think it's needed to, to, to minimise the number of errors, which is, well, sounds crazy to say that out loud when we've just witnessed a barrage of human-based errors whilst VAR being implemented. Just crazy. So I don't know what's going on here, but it seems to be something happening between the PGMOL and Premier League clubs. There seems to be some sort of a... Uh, they're not in sync with the Premier League. The Premier League as an organisation should be um, in place, in line with the PGMOL. 
they should be in line with that organization and with all the officials who are part of that organization but it seems to me that they it can it can it, it, it seems quite clear and obvious that they're both not on the same page the premier league clubs are certainly not on the same page with either of them but it just makes things worse when you've got one organization who hasn't got a grip of the the correct standards that needs to be applied in the best league in the world I say that in quotations. And well, that's about it, really. There's nothing more to add to that. <sighs> I was hoping to have a, a quite a calm and measured introduction to this show. I was hoping to ease myself into it, but I can't hold myself <laughs> together any longer. I've spent the last 24 hours trying to digest. And, and you know, funnily enough, when I first, when I was watching the game live, it did seem strange to me that, you know, you're sitting there hoping and praying that it, it will be offside. You can see that, you know, there's a potential of it being offside. But then the lines weren't drawn and then you're scratching your head thinking, hold on a minute, why weren't the lines drawn? It was, I mean, the first one that they showed was really, really close. The one where, um, oh, I'm going to have to watch the game. To see which one it was but the one that they the one that they failed to show on the tv um the header was um headed to tony across the face of goal i'm just gonna pull it up now so we score and then there's a flurry of headers Yes. The second header, which goes down to Canos, might be. That's clearly offside. The free kick, the initial free kick which is taken, comes in and they don't draw that line. The one where it comes on the back post, maybe you can make a case for that one because, well, Tony's not really involved in the play. But the second one, not Tony, I beg your pardon. Um, the other guy, number 10, uh, De Silva, I think it was. But then, headed down to Canos, neither of them had lines drawn. Which is such a bizarre... When, when, when you're doing a job, there are certain things that you follow. Standards, procedures. You know, I'll give you an example. When you're playing a game of football, the aim of the game is to kick the ball into the back of the net. In order to do that, you need to wear football boots. It would be incredible, incredibly strange if one day a player decided to turn up without his boots. You'd be scratching your head thinking, what's going on here? It's exactly the same thing that happened on that afternoon with VAR. Lines not being drawn isn't a human error. It's more than that. It is the bare minimum, the fundamentals of your job as a VAR assistant is to get those basics right. Freeze the screen at the moment where the ball has been taken off from the player's foot number one number two identify who is either onside or offside when the moment that ball is released number three draw the lines to make sure that what you're seeing is correlating with what just happened those are the three things the three very basic fundamentals that you need to stick with for whatever reason, Lee Mason decided to have different plans. Human error, they're calling it. I mean, let's just quickly have a look at what the PGMOL is actually responsible for. So they were formed in 2001 to improve refereeing standards. Can you believe it? These guys are here to improve refereeing standards. 
the PGMOL group officiates across all the Premier League, English Football League and Football Association competitions. All three organisations fund it. <coughs> Excuse me. So they're funded by the Premier League, which therefore means that they're part of the Premier League, no? But they're kind of like a subcategory, I guess, of... Or within the Premier League. The training, development and mentoring of 117 referees and 177 assistant referees. Run by managing director Mike Riley. I think it's... Um, they, they they yet to update this, isn't it? Isn't it run by Howard Webb? Who is now the chief... Um, yeah, the chief of the PGMOL. Chief. Mm. Managing director Mike Riley. Well, that's a different role, isn't it? So, yeah. And a team of managers and coaches. Okay, the most high-profile officials, the 22 full-time full -time professional select group one referees um, is, what, is, what, is also what the PGMOL are responsible for. Um... How is being a select group referee different? Okay, I don't think we need to know about all of that. What does PGMOL do to support select group? Okay, I don't think we need to... Okay, so look, you know, the basic... Fun <laughs> the basic... <coughs> um, definition for what the PGMOL is... Is a an organisation that's there to improve refereeing standards... Bullshit. That's all I see. <sighs> now, this man, Howard Webb, um, who's at the centre of this controversy, has done this before. He's He's got history with this kind of error. Let's do a little Google search on Lee Mason, shall we? Let's see what the first thing that comes up when we type in Lee Mason. <coughs> a retired referee um, from Bolton, Greater Manchester. Refereed between 2006 until 2021. <coughs> He's messed up big time. And... You know, I, I I don't expect him to get sacked, although we're all calling for it. I don't I don't expect it will go down the way we want it to go down. Everyone is rightly furious and we're outraged by this. But I don't see I don't see nothing more than a slap on the wrist. Maybe a fine, maybe a few weeks off. To forget to draw lines. I mean, think about it. You're reviewing the situation. You're sat there. You're you're reviewing it. You're, you're looking at the screen. It should be instinctive, instinctive, in your nature as a VAR assistant to draw those lines. Unreal. Absolutely unreal. Like I said, this happened before. Um, I can't quite remember from the top of my head where where he was involved or what he was involved in. Hmm. Interesting. Chef forgets to cook. Bus driver forgets to drive. Could someone really forget the one thing they're paid to do? I mean, this is what I'm saying. It makes no sense. How can this be? How can you forget to draw lines? This is the only thing that you're supposed to do. The three things that I mentioned are the only real things. Only real part of your job is to sit there, review a situation, stop it at the right moment, Look with your own eyes and use your own judgment and then allow the lines to back it up. It's absurd. It's absolutely scandalous. This smells of shit. 
And I want to know, I, 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 you know, I, I don't know. I mean, we know they're going to do a, a full, um, what's, what's the word that they used? They're going to do a full in-depth investigation. There's one thing I don't trust is investigations. The moment I hear investigation, my head tells me that is the end of that chapter. We want an independent body, independent of the Premier League, of the PGMOL, to do an investigation. Because this stinks. You don't just forget to draw lines. And for someone who's done it more than once, something is going on. What did he think? We weren't going to notice. People and those that are crazy about analysis and analysing football games and looking back at situations, stat merchants, you didn't think they were going to review and reassess the game and have a look at every detail. Nonsense. Anyways. It's great to be here talking to you guys on my own because for those of you that have been listening for a long, long time from the beginning, um, you'll know that the show initially started with me as, I guess, a sole um, host using this platform to first and foremost give myself therapy and then in the hopes of it kind of helping others. I found myself in that situation today. I need to... <laughs> uh, let myself have this moment so that it can pass. Because City have beaten Villa. They are... not that far behind. They're very, very close. Um, and it worries me going into this game on Wednesday that a defeat, even, I mean, a draw I'd take happily, but a defeat is worrying. Because not only will that have been four games without a win, it will mean City are above us and the first time in a very, very long time this season where we lose that position. Despite having a game in hand. I don't think that game in hand matters as much in the grand scheme of things because the confidence will have been massively destroyed, basically. So... These are the fine margins that we're playing with in the Premier League. And it annoys me more that this decision or a lack of a decision it annoys me more that that decision went against us because it's moments like those that make all the difference in the course of a season. When Arsenal need to get back on track, they need to get back to winning ways, find their form again. It's these types of games where you either find your form or you go down this very slippery road path where, you know, things don't work out as well as you might have liked. Sometimes you need to scrape an ugly victory. Sometimes you need to get three points however you can before resuming from where you left off, i.e. before the City defeat. So that decision going against us can now potentially take us down a very, very slippery path. And that's not to take anything away from Brentford because Brentford were really, really good. In fact, Brentford have been really, really good 
for the large part of this season. Going into this game, they were undefeated in their last nine. They had beaten Southampton 3-0. They'd beaten Bournemouth 2-0. Liverpool 3-1. And they had also beaten City at the Etihad. So, this is a very, very well-drilled side. Thomas Frank has got them playing a very consistent style of football and they have been churning out some consistent results. And... Alongside Brighton, there are maybe two or three other Premier League sides who have maintained that level of consistency from last season. Brighton being the other team. And, well, I say Newcastle, but Newcastle have arguably excelled from last season. Um, But those three teams in particular, Newcastle, Brentford and Brighton, Those three teams you would take a point from. You know, I think a lot of teams will be quite lucky to get a result against these sides because they play really good football. They're very they're 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 a very intelligent footballing side, and they've been very consistent in the level of their performances from the previous season. Before we go on to talk about the game itself. Let's discuss the starting lineups because I was a little bit surprised at what I saw. And I was expecting a few changes. I have to be honest. Um where do I start? So the back four. Was I expecting Arteta to start the same back line that lost at Everton? Yes, because I know he loves Zinchenko and I know Tierney's days are probably numbered. Gabriel and Saliba at the back are as solid as you can get. White had a disappointing evening at Everton, but I knew he could redeem himself and he has been outstanding at the right. So I was more than happy to um, have him there. In the middle. Thomas Partey, Granit Xhaka and Odegaard were perfect trio for me. And up front, Eddie Nketiah, Bakayo Saka and Gabriel Martinelli. I was expecting and hoping to maybe see a little change in that front three. Um, either Nketiah out or Martinelli out. But Arteta decided to go for that same um, 11 that lost to Everton which I'm more than happy to see because for the most part, they have performed outstandingly well. And, you know, even that Everton defeat, the football was still quite impressive. We still had a swagger about us. We were still able to dominate the opposition. It's just unfortunate that we were playing an Everton side who um, were playing their first game under... Sean Dyche, and it was unfortunate that we were playing a Sean Dyche side. So, but this was a perfect opportunity for us to bounce back at home at the Emirates. Three o'clock kickoff, which I guess meant it was going to be a fully packed out Emirates stadium. However, it was quite disappointing to hear that there were a number of empty seats and the atmosphere was quite flat um from from where i was sat which was at home watching it on the uh, computer screen it did seem a little bit ordinary to what we maybe have witnessed in previous seasons um i mean the beginning was great everyone was pretty jeered up and ready for it but then it's it's the important parts of the game you know it's the the 15th minute onwards where the game is settled. You need your crowd to really put the opposition under pressure, get them to feel that 12th man. And at the same time, push the home team on to, you know, speed up the play, um, 
to move the ball into the dangerous areas quicker. You know, take shots on, take players on, make bold moves. These are the kinds of things that the the crowd are really good at. Um, and in comparison to Goodison Park, we were quite meh. It was a nice afternoon at the Emirates. That's what it felt like. Um, and apparently that was due to a lot of um, casual fans. I think it's fair to call them casual fans. Fans who get the opportunity to buy a reasonably priced ticket and attend a game at the Emirates. Um, I know this will not be the case for Wednesday evening. I know Wednesday evening will be a completely different makeup of fans and that place will be rocking because individuals, fans who will be attending that game will have paid a pretty penny to be there compared to Arsenal versus Brentford, which, you know, you're paying 40, 50 quid upwards. Whereas at the City game, you're paying 80, 90, 100 plus. So very much looking forward to that. But um, as far as the the atmosphere against Brentford, not the greatest. So moving on to the game itself. First 10 minutes, holding possession in the opening couple of minutes, um, playing lovely football. They weren't as intense, which I was really surprised about. I expected Brentford to come flying out at us, um, you know, to, I guess, set the tempo, set the mood but surprisingly they were very reserved seemed like they were trying to adopt what Everton had done um which actually is the complete opposite they were you know at our toes from the very minute that we had the ball um I was quite impressed with Nketiah's movement he was playing really deep helping us to keep the build-up as fluid as possible despite Brentford setting up in a really good defensive shape and then there was a chance um, in the opening few minutes, big, big chance for Brentford with Tony putting in a brilliant cross and then Henry with a guilt edge miss, which you know, completely mishits. That could have been one nil then. And after that, though, we have a couple of chances ourselves. So Odegaard with a wonderful ball cuts through Brentford's defence um, and then Martinelli just catches the ball and, and strikes it from a cute angle uh, to win, win a corner. Zinchenko has a shot from Saka's corner, which flies over. So overall, the first opening 10 minutes was okay. We were, we had control of it. Other than that first, other than that Brentford chance with Rico Henry, um, everything else seemed quite good. We were building up play. We were getting it into the feet of the wingers. It was just unfortunate that they couldn't do much with it. Um... You know, Saka did get the better of Rico Henry on, on, on a few occasions, but the ball wasn't being received to Saka quick enough. I felt like this was... The, 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 the attacking play was quite reminiscent of Goodison Park, of what it was like at Goodison Park, in the sense that the football looked pleasing to the eye. We had control but it was quite, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Useless? No, not necessarily useless. Ineffective? It was like ineffective control. You know, just grey, bit dull, meaningless, and just having possession for the sake of having possession isn't, what Arsenal have been doing this this season. Our possession has always been very meaningful and very purposeful. The structure and way of moving the ball has a distinctive purpose. It's to get it to somewhere which ultimately results in creating a good goal-scoring opportunity. Whereas in that first half, it felt like we had all the control in the world, but for whatever reason, it didn't look dangerous enough. And it wasn't dangerous enough. It wasn't made dangerous enough because Brentford was sat in a very low block. Um, and I noticed quite early on that because 
they learnt something quite valuable uh, when we played Everton, which was playing a you know in a low block, defending in numbers, getting ten men behind the ball, closing off spaces. It meant that we weren't able to utilize Eddie. It meant that Eddie and Ketia was effectively invisible. Because Eddie Nketiah's number one strength and what we love about him most is his tenacity, is his the ability to be in the right place in the right time um, and make opportunities happen for himself, which is running off the ball and running into space. But where are you running into when you've got a team who have decided to sit in a back five with, uh, you know, a, a block of four in front of them. Nowhere. You're just walk, hanging hanging around. And Nketiah hanging around doesn't do much unless he, you know, falls deep and tries to... Um, tr- tries to get the ball moving, tries to, you know, be involved in the build-up play, which he didn't do much of, to be honest. And I don't blame him for that because that's not what Eddie Nketiah is all about. But regardless of that, there were still plenty of opportunities that Arsenal had created. In that game itself, there were 27 shots, I believe. Let me just make sure that I didn't make that up. 23. 23 shots, 7 on target. Brentford had 9 shots, 2 on target. We had 70% possession, 590 passes compared to their 267. Um, the passing accuracy, 86, which shows that we were obviously controlling the game. Um, no yellow cards or red cards as well. Really good. Seven corners. So in all areas of the pitch, we, you know, we, we were the dominant side. Um, but it was them who had the best opportunity or the better of the two opportunities in the first half, which was, um, you know, the first one being Rico Henry missing that guilt edge opportunity. And then Ivan Tony hitting the bar. Um, Luke, we losing possession in the middle of the park, giving ourselves or putting ourselves in a real, you know, troublesome scenario. I think it was Thomas Partey who, or it was it was uh, Saliba, poor header from Saliba, um, which allowed Tony to find Embuemo, um, who cut the pass back to Tony and his effort hit the frame of the goal. So, um, yeah. They they started to pick up the pace in that in in that first half. The latter stages of that first half, despite uh, you know us controlling the game, it was it was it was those little things. So not being dominant enough aerially was a really big one that we suffered in that first half because Ivan Tony was I think he won all ten um, aerial duels or. I think it was Saliba who lost all 10 aerial duels, many of which were against, in fact, they, they might have all been against Tony, who was just spectacular. Like, he was brilliant for Brentford. Um, and I think if he if he moves anywhere in the summer, it will be for a really big team. Because um, he's proven himself now. He's proven that he is a valuable asset to any team. Um, especially Brentford in their Premier League campaign. Um, so yeah, he made he made it really difficult for Saliba, and that's testament to um, Tony because not many players are able to, you know, dominate Saliba the way that Tony did. Um, and it helped them a lot because obviously it got him and, and Buemo, um being able to hit us on the counter attack, being able to you know beat us with strength as well as speed. Speed coming in the form of Mbemo, strength coming in the form of um, Tony. And, you know, we were we were failing to, I guess, we were failing to recover when we lost the ball in, in you know, key areas of the pitch. So middle of the pitch, in the final third. Um, we're obviously committing ourselves, over committing ourselves when we're going forward with White and Zinchenko. So all you've got left back is... Saliba and Gabriel. Um, and oftentimes there was two v two situations with Mbuemo and, and Tony against the back two. 
Um, and so, you know, leaving really big spaces in the middle, middle of the park in comparison to Brentford, who are really well organized. And maybe this is something that we can work on um, on the training pitch. When we're going forward in possession, we need to tighten up a little bit around the spaces so that if there is a situation where we lose the ball, we're able to very, very quickly um, you know, get into our defensive shape and try and close down as many green spaces as possible, which is a difficult thing to do because once you've decided that you're going to overcommit, you've 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 made that de- you've made that decision um, to overcommit and risk the the you know scenario of being in that situation where there is a two v two. So, you know, we could have been caught out many a time had Brentford maybe or Tony. And 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 Buemo had they um, tightened up on their shooting, had they had it been another day, maybe we'd be two down by that um, by the end of that first half. Near the end of the first half, um, we started to pick things up again. A few good crosses coming into the box from our flanks. But there was just no one in the box. So those crosses were being reduced to nothing effectively. Um, but I felt like, um, you know, players like Odegaard, Shaka, Saka, Partey were still doing what they needed to do, which was good. Um, but it was just that final bit of quality which wasn't there. So, yeah. You know, we were getting closer and closer to the ultimate chance and opening the scoreline. Very clean and neat passing, short interchanging triangles, you know, which was seeing the ball land in the right places, but just, just no one there. No one in the right, no no one for that end product. And the thing about Eddie Nketiah is that he, it's brilliant when he scores, but you can never guarantee that he's going to take his opportunities. Whereas someone like Jesus, which this game was screaming for, and had Jesus place, I, I, you know, I strongly believe this would be a completely different result. Because the guy can do everything that you need him to do. And you know that when he gets the ball in the right areas, nine times out of ten, he's going to test the keeper. And Ketia, on the other hand, it's more of a 6.5 out of ten. I'm Like, I'm not convinced. Out of five opportunities, five key opportunities, maybe he converts two. Maybe that's me being super unfair, but that's just the impression that I get when I'm watching Eddie. Anyway, second half. Um, second half, second half, second half, second half. It was it was a lot more direct in the second half. There was lovely play from us uh, very early on. There was a good chance. We were finally playing the ball through the middle. So it was a moment when Zinchenko passed it to Shaka, Shaka passed it to Saka, and his shot was saved on the near post. Very direct, you know, uh, you know, line-breaking passes. Uh, another chance. We were on the counter-attack this time with Shaka playing a ball to Nketiah, wriggles out of his way from his marker and then puts in a lovely cross for Odegaard, um, and his shot went straight to Raya. So that's in the first opening 10 minutes of that second half. And then there was a really big chance for um, Tony. So, big, big chance for Tony to slot it home after winning the aerial duel. Um, then he passes the ball to... Uh, it, he passes the ball in the box between um, Buemo um, and Janssen. And then finally, Buemo to Janssen and then Janssen finally to Tony, whose finish goes wide. Very, very lucky. Um, and at that moment in time, you know, in the 60, I, I guess in the, in the, when did Trossard, Trossard came on, I believe, 67th minute, something like that. Because Arsenal ended up scoring when? No, Trossard came on on the 60th minute or the 55th minute. I usually own the 60th minute. Yeah, 60th minute, Trossard came on for Martinelli. Six, minute, six minutes later, he scores. At that moment, I would have bought on Kirantini because it was very clear to me 
that Zinchenko's, Zinchenko's role specifically was not working. The reason why Arteta bought Zinchenko from City is because he plays that inverted role which adds depth to the midfield, which adds that extra pass, that extra movement, that extra space being covered, which creates that much more fluidity, allowing us to look really good when we move the ball across the pitch. However, playing against a low block, that extra space, movement, pass is meaningless if you're unable to get it behind the opposition. And so with Zinchenko being um, in that inverted position as a, as, a, as, a, as a left fullback, it was resulting in a lot of interchanging flanks. You know, passes, the ball being passed from one flank to the other because um, clearly we weren't getting, a, getting our way through. And what this game was really calling out for was just explosivity. Someone who was going to come on and take players on, pull players out of possession, position, um, movement. I think that's what we needed. Movement, movement, movement. And there was just so, there was just a lack of that, really. Sinchenko is great because he, you know, he's able to create the movement. He's not necessarily at the center of the movement, but he creates movement. But down that left-hand side, it was really, it was, it was, it became quite evident that Martinelli wasn't going to be able to do much because he was being marked out of the game. There was no overlapping runs from you know someone like Zinchenko you'd expect. So I was at that point hoping that Tierney would come on. And I, I I don't quite understand why he wasn't brought on. You know, especially near the end of the game where it was 1-1. Um, we were committing ourselves forward. You could see that they were sort of hanging on for that result. You needed to bring on someone like Tierney so he could make those overlapping runs. So he could pull... Um, Brentford, I guess, apart and disrupt them a little bit. Of course, it's a risk, you know, bringing Tierney on because he overcommits when he goes forward, and then we leave big gaping holes to to, to cover. But at that at that point, I guess ten minutes to go, I'd have brought him on. We're playing for three points. We know we need three points. We know we we know we need a victory. We need to win if we want to get back on track. So, look, Zinchenko had a very frustrating um, afternoon. Um, and Martinelli did okay, but we weren't able to see that Martinelli effect that we usually do. Trossard comes on and Trossard changes the game. All of a sudden, you see him taking players on. You know, step overs and dropping the shoulder, very agile movements quick and frantic that side of the pitch is, looks warmed up now it looks you know if, if there's anything that's going to be happening it seems to be that left hand side um, and then from nowhere we see a goal produced from I don't know the goal itself seemed maybe a lack of concentration on Brentford full run you know, he times it brilliantly. Odegaard plays the ball in between the line. We didn't see many of those. Um, but whoever that is, him, puts in a lovely ball across the face of goal. The, almost a perfect ball. And these are the types of, you know, crosses or half crosses I want to see. Not deep, long lunging crosses that you need to get your head onto because we don't have any of those guys available. We don't have a Tony in the box or a Haaland or dare I say a Rashford. But that ball is perfect. Low, pacey and Trossard is there the right place at the right time. Arsenal are 1-0 up. And we're all blowing a collective sigh of relief. <sighs> you know? 
So we score, we're 1-0 up. There's another chance. Trossard with a shot that goes high and wide. It's a very good counter-attacking piece of football. Um, Saka flicking the ball onto Odegaard. Odegaard, you know, he's tugged on. Uh, we could have a foul in that position, but he releases the ball for Trossard and the shot just goes a little bit high and wide. Very ambitious. Um, and then the goal itself, we spoke about it in the beginning. I don't know if there's much I can, much more I can, I can talk about with this goal. Actually, there is. There is something that I do want to talk about and point out, and that's the 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 foul that was given to Brentford for that free kick is just another absurd bit of officiating. Something has to be said about that initial challenge between Tony and Saliba, where Tony's arms, both of his arms are wrapped around William Saliba. I mean, if we, I mean, I don't understand why they've implemented VAR if they can't use VAR properly. Why is it so difficult to make decisions based on what you can see on the screen? Me, you, and everybody else are seeing the same footage, the same pictures of Tony's arms around Saliba's um, torso or his back. Like in live time, we can see that and instantly say, that's a foul. He's pulling on Saliba. Saliba can't do very much. He's pulling him towards him. So why can't they implement the system? Why can't the Premier League... PGMOL, whoever the hell is responsible for inventing VAR, why could they not have invented a TV screen that shows live footage of a football match and for someone to make a decision based on those live footages rather than seeing a hundred different angles of a hundred different scenarios? It's quite clear and quite simple and quite obvious to see that in this scenario, Ivan Tony had his arms around William Saliba. William Saliba, therefore, can't do anything but stand there and basically take what's coming to him. You know, he can't wrestle his way out of that situation. Or he can try. But then it just makes it look like, you know, he's the one committing the foul. So, three horrible mistakes here unforgivable mistakes. The first one is the free kick being given to Brentford in the first place, which shouldn't have been a foul. And I understand why it was given a foul is because this duel between Saliba and Tony had been going on all afternoon. And at some point, the referee was going to have to give a free kick to Tony, but not at the, wrong, <laughs> at the wrong moments. You don't give him a free kick when it's not a free kick. If it's something small, slight, but Saliba was in the wrong four, then fine, fair enough. You know, you've given him ample opportunities. But this was not it. So they win the free kick. Free kick comes in deep. The first, the first kind of uh, phase of this play is offside. Tony's in an offside position, or whoever that is, into silver. Then the second phase where the ball bounces off um, whoever that is, another Brentford player's head. and. Number five. Who's number five? Can I be bothered to see? Number five is Pinnock. So Pinnock's header puts um, number six, Norgard, in an offside position. Norgard heads it to Tony, who's yards away, puts the ball in the back of the net, 1-1. One, one. Now, at this moment in the game, I'm none the wiser to this whole kind of, you know, offside scenario. Um, they showed it back. I was a bit surprised that they didn't show the lines, but I didn't read much into it. We were still in the game. We were still creating chances. Um, Zinchenko with an immediate response, in fact, with a long-range low shot, which is comfortably saved by Raya. There's another chance from Zinchenko, um, just from outside of the box. Low attempt that goes wide. Shaka then comes off for Vieira in the 80th minute. Um, I'm screaming, or not necessarily screaming, I've got my hands on my head, I'm thinking, we need to play more line-breaking passes. Why are we not being more direct? Uh, Nketiah just doesn't have that close control that Jesus has, because when we pass it into him, it's very scrappy. 
you know, it's almost dealt with immediately by by Brentford. Um, so those are the two things that we we missed in that game. We missed Jesus, who has that close control ability, who has the skill um, to get away from players quickly and just have that spark, that magical effect. And then not bringing on Tierney as well, which was, for me, a sin. A sinful decision by Arteta. Um, I don't know what more he can do to get himself in the game, especially in situations like that. So, and, and you know, it didn't help even near the end of the game where Brentford were applying dirty tactics. Um, you know, not just wasting time, but getting quite cynical with their fouls and stuff. But, you know, I don't want to read too much into that. Um, so, yeah. I guess, I guess, I guess the story of the game was very frustrating afternoon because Brentford made it frustrating. A unforgivable decision to not give that as an offside when it was, because that then dictates the rest of the game. If that offside decision is given, what happens? You and I can only speculate on, but either Arsenal go on to score another goal, Brentford equalise, or it ends 1-0. We will never know. But we know decisions like that dictate the remainder of the game massively. Like psychologically, it has massive implications on both sides. So I don't know. I I still feel incredibly pissed off. I still feel incredibly hard done by, you know, and there has to be a moment where we put our foot down and we say enough is enough. Because this has happened far too many times to Arsenal, especially this season. From, you know, VAR messing it up at Old Trafford to Gabriel being manhandled in the box on a number of occasions as well. A penalty decision that went against us last week to this. The one that stands out in my head, not this season, but, you know, the David Luiz red card. I mean... And no one really speaks about it as much because it's Arsenal. It's Arsenal Football Club. Therefore, we don't care. We don't care to talk about it. We don't care to draw, uh, shed much light on it because, you know, we don't like them as much. But if it was someone like United, City, Chelsea, Spurs, Spurs are the, <laughs> the prime example, you know, victimised a victim of their own, I guess, history. But maybe that's why everyone gives them so much sympathy. Because always poor old Spurs. Anyway, I'm blabbering on about nothingness now. So I think this is a good time to, or a good point in the podcast where we end it. Um, I want to say a massive thank you to everyone who's listened up until this point. Thank you very, very much for tuning in. If you did enjoy this episode, please do give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Let us know what you thought of the show by reaching out to us on Twitter. You can find us over there at AskTherapyPod. Um, you can follow me on Twitter as well by reaching out and finding me at finding me on there at since 96 Again, let me know what you thought of the episode. Let me know if you agree, disagree, or if you want to add anything onto what I said. We will be back, of course, in the midweek for the big one, Arsenal versus Manchester City. I know I promised a match preview, but I still can't get over the fact that we were robbed um, at our own ground. So I don't think it's, <laughs> I don't think I'm quite ready to look at that City game. Um, yeah, normally what happens at the end of these shows, I'm able to just release everything and be okay, you know, move away from the episode knowing that I left everything on it and that I feel good. I I don't feel good at all. I still feel incredibly frustrated, angry, pissed off. I can't believe that they've done this to us. And, you know, it goes against everything that I thought this sport was all about. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to leave it there. Um, thanks very much. We'll see you on the next one. Until then, take care of yourselves. 
Have a very good week. Um, and speak to you soon. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>